Boy, I must have been good this week. I'm actually in the pulpit before 9.30. How does that happen? Back in November of this year, a friend of mine, uh, a pastoral friend of mine, emailed me a link to a Baptist Press article related to some persecution that was taking place in Uzbekistan. You remember Uzbekistan was a, was a former uh, Soviet bloc uh, kind of satellite country that has been kind of struggling to get themselves together ever since. And um, this particular article referred to the fact that the leader of the Baptist Union, as well as their accountant, as well as a local pastor who was serving as the director of a children's camp that met throughout their summer, had all been arrested. And they had been charged with tax evasion from the profits that they had made from the camp. Even though the Baptist Union was putting money into the camp, to get it to, to be break-even, they were charged with, with um, tax evasion, as well as unlegal, or illegal, let me put it that way, illegal evangelization. And the, the government began to really kind of orchestrate a whole campaign, if you will, to frame these three gentlemen, uh, including the fact that they took statements from a number of the parents who had sent their children there that had written up their statements in Russian, which none of them spoke or read, and then had them sign those statements. And when those statements were read in court, the statements reflected that that these guys had actually tried to coerce their children to go to the Baptist church kind of idea, where the parents had never said that at all in any of their statements. These guys eventually were fined 260 months worth of salary. That's like about 25 years or something, a little over 20 years. An an enormous sum that they could never, ever pay back. One of the local pastors there in Uzbekistan has been in jail, a Pentecostal pastor, for the last couple of years because of the sharing of his faith. And then just recently, from the same friend of mine, I received this prayer request asking us to pray about a situation. And and this is what he wrote to me. He says, one of the largest churches in Tashkent, the capital of Uzbekistan, was raided by the secret police yesterday. The Church of Christ of Tashnet is officially registered with the government, which is a requirement, and has a Sunday attendance of about 1,000 people. The police interrupted the Sunday service. The assistant pastor and the church administrator were arrested as the senior pastor was out of the country attending a conference. Individuals were interrogated at the church and some taken to police headquarters. The congregation was recorded on video and were asked to produce identification documents. In other words, we want to know who you are. Those names were then recorded. License plate numbers were recorded. Church computers were confiscated. And today the electricity to the building was cut off. Building inspectors arrived with the police and searched the building, looking for any possible code violations so they could close the building. Some church members took out their cell phones to film the raid. They were arrested. You know, it's interesting when we read these and we understand that this is just a very small sample of the kind of persecution that goes on around the world today of people of faith. I mean, we're in the 21st century, and literally through all 21 centuries of Christianity, you can find places where believers were persecuted because of their faith. I mean, it started in Jerusalem, didn't it? I mean, literally just a few weeks, a few months after the church was born in Jerusalem, Jews were already beginning to stone those who had converted to the way. And we see the Apostle Paul before his conversion participating in that and and going along with them and, and seeking ways 
to stamp out Christianity and to eliminate those who were its proponents in culture. You know, hardship inevitably is a part of our Christian journey. I don't know if, the, if anybody could put it any more succinctly than the Apostle Paul underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says this in 2 Timothy 3.12, All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Now, did you understand that when you signed up for the journey of godly living? And now that you know it, now that we know it, are we really ready for that? I mean, that's really what our, our message is all about today from this second letter to the churches that we find in the book of Revelation. If you have your Bibles, I'd love you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11 today. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you're going to find our text today on page 10,040, or 1,040, I should say, not 10,040, 1,040. This is one of the two churches in the, of the seven churches that does not receive a, a, they're not condemned by Jesus. Remember last week we looked at the church at Ephesus, who had been had, had the Apostle Paul living among them for three years. They had been his on-fire congregation. And in the midst of all of their diligence in walking with God, they'd experienced love loss. They had fallen out of love with God, even as they faithfully served Him, as they defended truth, as, you know, and through all of that, they still fell out of love with God. And they were condemned for that and challenged to remember and to repent and do the things they had done. This church doesn't receive any condemnation at all. But, that, but they are about ready to experience hardship. And the, and the Lord of the church who walks among the, 11, the seven lampstands, as we see in the book of Revelation, the seven lampstands which represent the churches, he knows what's going on. He understands what's at stake for them. They can either, as it says in James, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let that endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He knows that the opportunity is before them to deal with the pothole of hardship in their lives and emerge from it lacking nothing, or they can experience being derailed because of the hardship. And as Paul experienced that under his first trial, he found himself all by himself because he was abandoned by everybody because of the hardship that went with following Jesus Christ. So all of this creates a scenario for us and a remembrance for us that we need to understand that inevitably, if we're going to walk with Christ, we will experience hardship. And that hardship is either a pothole that we will avoid and move on to a place where we lack nothing, or we're going to hit it and blow out a tire and find ourselves disabled on the side of the road. So with that backdrop, we read, beginning with verse 8 of Revelation 2, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life says, I know your tribulation and poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The victor, the one who overcomes, will never be harmed by the second death. Now, I, I have a few comments I'd like to make about what it takes for you and I to overcome the potholes of hardship in our spiritual journey. But before I do that, I want to kind of walk through a running commentary from this text. 
just so we kind of get the full flavor of it, understand what's all behind it, some of the, the depth that comes. So as John is out on the island of Patmos, he's, it's on a Sunday, he's having this vision from God as Christ has showed up into his life, and he's serving as a scribe, writing down these letters to the churches that are coming directly from the mouth of God. And Jesus has moved up the coast from Ephesus to a city called Smyrna. And he describes himself as the first and the last. Again, this is imagery, along with he who was dead and has come back to life. All imagery from Revelation chapter 1, where John recognized who it was that was speaking to him. This, this, the idea of the first and the last, or the Alpha and the Omega, is meant to communicate to us that Jesus brackets all of history. He was there before it started. He's there through all of it. And he's there at the end. There's no aspect of history that Jesus, as the Son of God, along with the triune God, is not involved in and shaping and directing towards its conclusion. The first and the last. The one who brackets all of history. The one who was dead and is now alive again. It's really interesting that he uses this imagery for this church. Because the, the city of Smyrna was absolutely destroyed at one point, about 350, 400 B.C. or 300 B.C., somewhere right in that area, if I remember correctly. And it was just laid waste, and it just it sat there for decades, and nobody touched it. But after Alexander the Great died, and his generals and sons and stuff kind of divided up the kingdom among them, one of them rebuilt the city of Smyrna. And it was in a sweet location. You know, it was, on, it was really kind of like... At, at the most inward spot of it, this huge bay or harbor. And it, it was right where a river flowed out, and it was a sloping, gentle hill up from the, from the bay. And it, was, it, it had a wonderful port, and the city just immediately began to flourish. It was a city that was dead and had come back to life. And the one who had been dead, Jesus, because of his sacrifice on the cross, and is now alive again, is writing to this church. And this is what he says to them. It says, I know your tribulation. Now, this word is a very intense word. It isn't just like, I know that you're having a hard time. This, this is like a word that says, I know that you are under life-crushing pressure. This word tribulation is that strong. It is a, it's a life-crushing kind of pressure. It's not just difficulty. It's not just kind of hardship. It's not just having a bad day, but it's life crushing kind of pressure and stress and hardship and pain. It says, I also know your poverty. The, the Greek really had two words for poverty. One of those were what we might refer to as in, a, in our country as the working poor, the people who barely have enough to live on. They don't have any extras, but they can barely get by. They're just poor. They had a different word that they used to describe the destitute who had absolutely nothing. Not even two nickels to rub together kind of idea. This word that he uses here for poverty is that word. He says, I know that you are under life-crushing kind of pressure. And I know that you are absolutely destitute. You've got nothing. I mean, really what was happening to the, to the Christians here in, they, they, in, in Smyrna, from what we can tell from history, it was primarily the poorer folks who were responding to the gospel. And they were living in a major city, and, and major cities are always more expensive to live in, right? I mean, apartments are more expensive, everything. And so they were already struggling. The city's flourishing, so inflation's kind of going up. And in the midst of all of this, they step up in the midst of a city that takes tremendous pride in being loyal to Rome. 
worship of the Roman deity, the god of Rome, started about 200 B.C. in Smyrna. And here we are in 100 A.D., 300 years of history where they took great pride in being loyalists to Rome, so much so that in, in A.D. 26, about 5 to 10 years before Jesus died, Smyrna actually got permission to build a temple to the emperor Tiberius. I mean, they took their Rome worship seriously, even though they were in Asia Minor. And with that, there was tremendous pressure on everybody in the city to bone up, if you will, to the worship of Rome. And if you didn't, you experienced the consequences immediately. And so here were these Christians who, who now were refusing to say Caesar is Lord. They were losing their jobs. They were having their homes taken away from them if they even had them. You know, any, it was all being taken. So the poor people were becoming poor. They were absolutely destitute. We see this kind of come to its greatest fruition in about 50 years after John wrote on the island of Patmos, 50 to 60 years, when the bishop of Smyrna, his name was Polycarp, experienced the same thing and refused to worship the, the god of the emperor of Rome. And with that was burned alive in Smyrna. They knew what it was meant to be under poverty. He then talks about the synagogue of Satan, who are the Jews who were blasphemous. And we don't know exactly all that John was talking about there, but we get symptoms of it from that experience of Polycarp. You know, it was interesting that the observers around who observed that recognized that it was the Sabbath day and the Jews were leading the pack to go get the wood to bring it in to burn Polycarp. They're not supposed to be working on the Sabbath, you know, kind of idea. But they were willing to do whatever it took to get rid of the Christians. And so he refers to them as those who are blasphemous and who are the synagogue of Satan. He says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. This word fear, you know, it, sometimes we have this idea that it's, it's, it's that which just paralyzes us. But really, fear in this case is almost any, any reaction we have, any emotional reaction mental, intellectual reaction, whatever, relational reaction that causes us to go in a different direction rather than that which we would value going in. Uh, It's this whole idea. He says, you know, don't be afraid. Don't let what's going to happen to you make you change the course of your mission of walking with me. He says, and don't be worried about what you're going to suffer because suffering is what a lot of times we allow drain us of our spiritual energy. He says, don't let any of that happen. The devil, he said, is about to throw some of you into prison. The word there really has the idea, the devil's about ready to throw some of you onto death row. That's the idea of prison here. It's a place where they took you and they held on to you for a couple of days before they executed you. It's not like just kind of going to jail for six months or whatever. You know, it's, it's going to jail and within a couple of days you're gone. The devil's going to throw some of you into prison to test you. And you'll have tribulation, that life-crushing pressure for 10 days. Now, there's a lot of speculation about what these ten, this 10 days means. You know, it could literally mean just 10 days. You know, it just starts today and it's over by a week from Wednesday. 10 days, we're done. And it could mean that. There really isn't any reason not to accept it that way. It could also be symbolic to say that this is just for a period of time. It's kind of a week and more, you know, but there is going to be an end to your suffering. It is limited because of who God is. And he says, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown 
of life. And this phrase really should be, I'll give you the victor's reef of the life, meaning the eternal life kind of idea. This would have been a wonderful imagery to the Smyrnans because they referred to the crown of Smyrna. Because if you, as you sailed into the bay and you looked up at the city, up at its crown was the Acropolis where all the temples were. And it was just a magnificent sight. And they referred to it as the crown of Smyrna. So he says, you know what? If, if you're faithful, even to the point of death, you're not going to get the crown of Smyrna. You're going to get the crown, the victor's wreath of eternal life. That's going to be what you're going to get. He says anyone who has ears to hear should listen to this, what the Spirit says to the church is the victor. That, that, the one who's faithful, who avoids the pothole of hardship, will never be harmed by the second death. You know this phrase, second death, is only used in the book of Revelation? It's used four times in the book of Revelation. The only time in all the scriptures that phrase is used. As you piece it all together, what it really is referring to is that you're going to get to a, the second death is, is those who go to the judgment at the end of human history who are pronounced guilty and they go on to an existence that is absent of anything that we would call life. They're not destroyed. It's not like they cease to exist, but they lose anything that we would call upon or recognize as that of being life. They suffer in the lake of fire. It was interesting that Polycarp, when he was um, being threatened by the Roman proconsul of, to, to, um, to offer sacrifice to the emperor. He said, you know what? What should I be more afraid of? An hour of earthly flame, or should I be afraid of eternal flame? And then he went on to say, you know, I've been, I've been serving Christ for 86 years. He was really old. He said, I've been serving Christ for 86 years. He's never let me down. I'm not going to deny him now. Do what you're going to do. Marvelous stuff. You look at this text, and obviously there's this tremendous warning an encouragement to the church at Smyrna to pass the test of hardship, to avoid the pothole in this road of faith that we would call hardship. Are there any suggestions to us from this text about how to do that? Let me suggest a couple of things to you from this text. And these things spoke to me very clearly this week. And, and you know, and some of you have experienced tremendous hardships in your life far more so than, than, than I've experienced in my journey so far. So I speak with a sense of humility, but I also speak with a sense of conviction that this is a word from God that we need to hear. And one of the things that's buried in this text that Jesus is trying to communicate to the church at Smyrna is that if you're going to avoid the pothole that hardship can become in your life, you have to reject self-pity. You have to reject self-pity. You have to stop feeling sorry for yourself. Woe is me kind of thing. And move on with the journey. Look what he says at the beginning. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. He says, but, but you're rich. Stop looking at the cup as though it's half empty. See that it's half full. I, I know your poverty. I know you've got nothing. You don't even know where you're going to stay tonight. You don't have any food for tomorrow. But you are rich in Jesus Christ. So stop feeling sorry for yourself. It's interesting that it is undoubtedly true that the, the, the letter that Paul sent to the church of Ephesus would have made itself around to the churches in Asia Minor. And at the very beginning of that, that book, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, he talks about the fact that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And here he, here now, some 50 years later, the Apostle John is trying to say, I know you're poor. But remember, you are absolutely mind-boggling rich in Jesus Christ. There is not one gift of grace, not one gift of the Spirit that you lack. You are mind-bogglingly wealthy in Jesus Christ. Don't lose sight of it. Stop with the self-pity. 
and move on. We have this wonderful riches of forgiveness and of mercy and of strength and of spiritual gifts and of purpose in life and an eternal mission to fulfill. None of us lacks all any of that stuff. So stop feeling sorry for yourself. Because what happens to us when we feel sorry for ourselves is, is you, know, well, you know, life's really hard for me and, 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 and God certainly doesn't expect me to obey when I feel like this. Or I'm mad at God now, so how could he expect me to do what he tells me to do or to read his word? Or I'm not even sure he's there anymore. I don't know if he's good and all these kinds of things. And we just shut down. And he says, stop feeling sorry for yourself. You know, in my experience of ministry, I've watched families go through hardship. And it's interesting, you know, um, had one scenario that I dealt with where one of the, the spouses w- just went through tremendous health issues and, and emerged from it with an alive, vibrant, growing faith. The other spouse indulged self-pity, withdrew from the body withdrew from the faith that they said that they still had and just kind of went into never-never land and just drifted spiritually because of self-pity. Why is God doing this to us kind of idea? Boy, if we're going to overcome this pothole of hardship, you've got to stop feeling sorry for yourself. Grasp on to the, all the incredible things that God has poured into the cup of your life and move on with purpose and joy. Probably enough said. The second thing I think that Paul is, John is saying to us, as the vehicle of Christ speaking to us is, let me use this terminology, there's no way you and I are going to avoid the pothole of hardship and avoid being on the curb if you guys live our, if we live our lives with nearsightedness. You know, when I take my glasses off, I can't see hardly anything, you know? I mean, in order for me to get to a place where I could even read the words clearly, I got to get about like this. You know, it used to be, uh, you know, now when I, we used to have a, a clock radio. We use our cell phones now for our, our alarms in our, in our bedroom. But it used to be we had this clock radio, and there'd be times when I'd be coming to bed later than Christina, and she'd say, and I'd already taken my glasses off. She'd say, what, what time is it, you know? And I'd have to kind of walk way over to the clock radio like this, and then I could hear her giggling in bed, you know, like, because I couldn't see anything. I'm nearsighted, really nearsighted. Now I'm not even nearsighted. I mean, I've got bifocals. They don't have any lines in them, so you can't tell. That's just my, you know, uh, my little pride, if you will, kind of idea. But progressives, they call them. I'm progressive. I want you to know that. I'm very progressive. You know, he's saying the same thing in this text. He said, listen, if if you do not take the long view, you're not going to make this journey. He said, right in front of you is hardship. The devil is about to put you through suffering. And if that's all that you can see, and that's all you build your life around, you're dead on arrival, spiritually. So if I want you to look up and see something a little longer, be faithful unto death, I'm going to give you the crown of life. Don't live your life with nearsightedness, spiritually. Lift up your eyes and see the big picture. See, it's, it's fear that feeds on that short-sightedness. And we, and we look at it and say, you know what, my primary objective in life right now has got to be to avoid this pain, to avoid this hardship. So it doesn't matter. I'm just going to do whatever it takes. And I'm going to define success as somehow getting out of the hardship, even if it means running away from a relationship, running away from a situation, or, you know, or running away from God, whatever it is, to get out of this scenario. And we see that as success. And God says, no, you've got to take the long view. Those who are faithful. Who understand that there's more to life than here and now. And build their lives around this long view. The long runway. Those are the ones who are going to overcome. And they'll never be harmed by the second death. It's powerful stuff. You know, folks, 
There's probably a lot of ways to boil down temptation and sin in our lives. I know those who have got a couple of pastoral friends that say that, that all sin is ultimately an issue of idolatry. Are we going to choose to love God the most, or are we going to choose to love something else more in that moment? I think another way to say is that is all, of the, all of our sin comes down to whether or not are we going to be nearsighted or farsighted. Is it all about instant gratification or instant relief? Or is it about the long view of doing what produces the greatest return for eternity and in heaven? If you and I are going to be people who can avoid the pothole of hardship and not be spiritually shipwrecked or car wrecked as a result of that pothole, we've got to correct the nearsightedness that comes into our lives. We need to recognize that what matters is not just here and now, but what really matters for eternity. One last point. Boy, I filled these 30 minutes up pretty fast, didn't I? At least it's been fast for me. I don't know if it's been fast for you, but it's been fast for me. Just one last point. Jesus would say through the Apostle John to the church at Smyrna and through them to us that we need to do whatever it takes to pass the test because we know what's at stake. You know, the issue isn't pain. The issue isn't hardship. The issue isn't suffering. The issue is the test of your faith. The devil is seeking to test you. And those who pass the test, who are the victors, get to escape the second death and enjoy the crown of life. It's all a test. It's all a test as to whether or not our faith is really faith or not. And he says, do whatever it takes. Be faithful even to the point of death so that you pass. The Smyrnans, I mean, they knew what they faced. Regularly, they were going to be required to walk into some kind of an assembly and have their name checked off the list and cast their votes for Caesar as Lord. All kinds of, you know, I don't really mean it, so I can just go in and say, yes, I survived. I passed. Failed. Polycarp, that's exactly what he was going through. He was being over and over again, the leaders of the city, as they was being brought in from a small home that, that the believers had taken him to outside the city, as they brought him in, they were begging and pleading with him to, to find a way just to say Caesar is Lord and to offer his little sacrifice. And he said, I can't do it. He passed the test. You know, somehow or another, we think we, we you know, it, it's, you know we're, we're, we're self-employed and our business is going under and our, and our vendor or supplier is saying to us, you know, can you really pay for this stuff? And we say, you know what, absolutely, when we know we can't. But it's what I need to do to keep my gut. We failed the test in the midst of hardship. I've seen people, you know, I've been with believers at, at hospitals where they've gotten just awful news. And, and it's like they changed right before my eyes. Foul language, treating people with, with, with contempt and disgust, being jerks. They failed the test. It's not just about somehow escaping your problems. It's about whether or not you're going to pass the test. Hardship, especially hardship that's connected with our faith, is a test. It's a way that God purifies and refines us so that we can lack nothing in our journey with Him. Anyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches because the victor will never be harmed by the second death. Our Father and our God, we're grateful to your word for us today. You know, God, none of us is excited the fact that there's persecution ahead for us, that there's life difficulty, that there's tests for us to go through. It will not be pleasant. None of us are excited about that. God doesn't expect us to be excited about those. But God, we're grateful for what can happen 
as a result of those deaths. That if we're faithful, we receive the crown of life. God, in every experience of our lives, allow us to see all that you've done for us, to understand that all that awaits us in eternity, and to do whatever it takes to pass the test of faith. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.